0: Hi, welcome to Location Cube, a Weaver Beyond the Numbers podcast. I'm Howard Altshuler, partner in charge of real estate and construction services at Weaver, and I'm here, as always, with my tax partner, Aaron Griss, who leads up our real estate tax practice. Today, we're joined by Ralph Farales, who is a managing director in our tax department in charge of our fixed asset advisory group. Ralph, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: And you've been here for a short period of time now I guess a few months and so tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing
1: sure Uh, so I head up like you said our fixed asset advisory practice Um, we consult with clients on tangible property capitalization issues Um, by training I'm an engineer uh, so I've been doing and I'm also an enrolled agent um, but I've been doing tax for over 20 years at this point helping clients with these sort of uh, challenges and issues that they face when uh, they're capital intensive and they're looking at depreciation and green energy incentives and things of that sort.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And as part of our fixed asset advisory practice, you're going to be
2: leading the cost segregation group as well. Um, for people like Howard, who might not know what a
1: cost seg is, <laughs> on a very basic level, what's a cost segregation study? And I'm sure, by the way, that Howard does know what a cost segregation is. I've heard the term. Yes. Uh, so simply put, cost segregation is when you look at a building right? And for IRS purposes, buildings are depreciated over straight line, usually over 39 years for uh, non-residential property and 27 and a half for residential. And you take a look at what is in that building and the IRS allows us to take a look at some of those components, depreciate them um, under a much shorter time frame, usually five, seven years, uh, maybe 15 years for land improvements. And what that does by accelerating those deductions, you reduce your taxable income and you have cash tax savings. So it's a, it's a really basic... Uh, cash tax savings play, but the methodology that goes into actually doing a cost seg, that's where some of the magic happens. So it's really in that present value play, because you're going to get the same deductions over your 39 years. You're just going to front load those deductions. Correct. So you're increasing your uh, deferred tax liabilities, right? Mm -hmm. your DTL. So it's a timing difference. Um, You're going to get the depreciation eventually. We're just trying to accelerate it. We're trying to put a dollar... In our client's pocket instead of in the irs's pocket
0: obviously every case is going to be different is there kind of like a magic formula in terms of a hold period to which this makes sense because just thinking i have a number of clients that are merchant builders um it seems like going through the process if you're going to generate a little bit of tax savings in the six months before you sell the property maybe not worth you know not worth a squeeze there but is is even for a merchant builder does it make sense or is it more more geared to maybe more longer term holders.
1: Yeah, and that's a great question that often comes up: is how long do I have to hold the property for this be- to to be a valuable service? And usually the rule of thumb is about three years, right? Because you do have twelve forty five recapture, um, and if you sell the property, obviously you have some recapture that you have to take into account, which reduces um, the you know the tax savings that you're getting from the cost seg. So there definitely is a hold period there, um, but. A lot of our clients, even though they might be flipping properties here and there, they typically have a portfolio or maybe even a handful of flagship properties that they do hold on to for longer than that. Um, and a cost segregation definitely makes sense in that case.
2: Mm-hmm. It's a great way if you looking at your tax bill in October and <laughs> it's going to be super high to buy another property and take a lot of upfront tax deductions. That's right. So, is there a type of property, whether it's industrial, multifamily, office, that you get the most benefit here? And, and also,
1: is it buying an older property versus developing one? Where, where do you see the most tax savings? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, and I'll tackle the first one first. Um, so pretty much you can do a cost segregation on any property, right? Whether it's multifamily, uh, office building, manufacturing, you name it. Um, now, there are certain types of properties where you can get a much higher reclassification into those shorter-lived assets. For example, a data center right? So if you have data centers, you have a lot of electric in there, a lot of plumbing, a lot of HVAC dedicated not to the operation and maintenance of the building, but to your business purpose. And that's a lot of basis that you can reclass into that shorter life. So buildings like that, that are very specific, very niche, um, typically get you a lot of benefit. Um, However, office buildings also get you a lot of benefit, not as much as manufacturing and some of those, um, you know, IT type buildings, but You definitely get some benefit out of them um now as far as your second question um you get the same amount of benefit whether you acquire a building Mm -hmm. or you construct it from scratch right you can do a cost seg on either now the methodology does differ right so in the case of an acquired building uh you may not have drawings for example Mm -hmm. right because the building was built a long time ago you may not have invoices um in a new building that you constructed, you have all those things. You have a contractor, they have a requisition for payment, you have brand new drawings that you can take a look at. Now the IRS allows, and not only do they allow, they actually prefer an engineered approach, which is what we use at Weaver, a full engineered approach to doing cost seg. The methodology differs slightly between newly constructed and acquired, but at the end, you get the same result, Mm -hmm. which is a schedule that shows the breakout between the short life property and the long life property Um, which, again, eventually makes it into your tax return and gets you that cash tax. So what do you mean by engineered approach as the non-engineer here? (laughs) As the (laughs) non-engineer. So I'll give you a perfect example right? that comes up pretty much all the time. So you may have, let's say, electric going to uh, a light in this room, Mm -hmm. and that's base building lighting. The IRS says that's real property. That's lighting that's required for the basic operation maintenance of the building. However, you may have some decorative lighting, maybe some task lighting that's not there for the maintenance and operation of the building. It's there for some type of di- a business purpose or maybe decorative purpose. Um, well, how do you determine the cost of one light versus the other? It may not always be broken out on an invoice, right? So you need to go into the drawing. You need to take a look at the conduit, the wiring, what goes into, you know, how much amperage is going to one versus the other. So the engineer approach really relies on cost engineering to quantify the assets that we're reclassifying and also looking at the cost how much does it cost or would it have cost back when that building was acquired um for that asset so so that's what that's where the engineering comes in and that's where we use a lot of our engineering background
0: so do you find yourself crawling around up in the Above the ceiling <laughs> with,
1: with a tape measure. We use the hard hats a lot, so okay. so oftentimes okay. uh, we do. So we have tape measures, uh, we have laser measures that we go in. That usually happens more when there's no drawings right. available. When we have drawings, we 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 stay away from the from the tools. But yes, oftentimes when when it's an acquired building, it's old. There's no drawings. We actually have to go in there and quantify the assets that we're looking at.
0: And so, and then I guess in that case, it's if you say, okay, we've got eighty six hundred feet of grade z electrical conduit <laughs> then it's a matter of okay what was like a standard price per foot back when the building was bought and you just apply that times exactly times the measure
1: so there's industry manuals that we use and it's actually very similar to the manuals that that are used by contractors when they bid on the work um save manuals and we go back and we do exactly what you just said
2: so do you have to do a cost egg when the building goes into service or when you immediately buy it or isn't there a way to do a cost seg after the fact?
1: Um, So we always prefer a cost seg when the building is acquired or when it's being constructed, right? For a couple of reasons. One, you have contemporaneous documentation available. Um, You know, the contractor might still be there, right? To answer questions. So it's always helpful to do it right when you acquire or right when you build. However, we can do cost segregations after the fact. So if you purchase or build a building in a prior year, you don't have to amend returns, right? Typically you can file a, a Form 3115, it's an automatic change of accounting method form. And what you do is you catch up those missed deductions over the prior years and you file that and you get it in your uh, current year return, right? So it's relatively straightforward, uh, but you could do it either way. Right. So if someone's watching this, bought a building five years ago, not too late. It's still an opportunity. Absolutely.
0: You know, I also can't help but wonder though. you talk about doing it when it's being built and having the plans and that your process is not much different than, say, you know, the construction company's process for bidding it. Do you ever see construction companies do that as part of the design and the planning and all that and then say, hey, we'll we'll do your work for you, but we'll also give you this, you know, this benefit of we've done a cost-ex study for you as an owner?
1: Right. So that's where, and that's a great question, and sometimes clients um, dally in that question, right, whether or not they should do that. Um, here's where the tax and the engineering come into play, right? So as an enrolled agent and some of our folks as CPAs or JDs. So we understand the tax technical part of it. Uh, We also understand the engineering part of it. So for example, not to say a contractor couldn't do this, but they wouldn't be able to tell you what's the 1245 property versus the 1250 property. Uh, Because sometimes, frankly, it doesn't make sense, right? Uh, When you're reading case law, when you're reading um, IRS pronouncements, um, oftentimes I'll give you a perfect example that comes up all the time. Concrete, right? So when you're pouring a slab for a building, that slab is 1250 property. It's real property. Okay. It's part of the maintenance and operation of the building because it's part of the, it's part of the building. Um, however, when you are building a concrete pad for a piece of equipment, it's still concrete. That concrete is can be taken as 1245 property, a short life property, because it's not there for the operation and maintenance of the building. It's there for that piece of equipment. So, someone who doesn't know the tax law, who may not know the background in concrete, right, and how it's uh, how it's treated one way or the other for tax purposes, may not catch those things.
0: And at the same time, it may be designed and poured at the same time. It's one big piece of concrete. It's just this many square. I'm sorry, cubic feet would be right. Would be and that cost life. may not be
1: broken yeah. out on a on a typical requisition for payment. So I just bought
2: that building over there, and I call you, I'm going to do a cost seg. That other uh, one? <laughs> and I've got plans. I, I, I It needs a new roof, right? So what, is, what, what are the things I can tell you, what things I can do to get the most out of this cost seg?
1: Sure. So you're, uh, so you're cost seg, obviously blocking and tackling, something very basic. Um, the other thing uh, or the other service that we help taxpayers with is uh, their repairs, right? CapEx, what do you do with things that you are repairing? Um there are repair regs that came out in 2013 that you both may remember um very involved right i I read those things a couple of times when they came out and it really guides taxpayers as to what is a capital improvement versus what's a 162 repair right Uh, and it comes down to whether something is a betterment a restoration or an adaptation it's the three-part test and if any of those are true it's a capital improvement so going to your roof example Uh, you can do a cost seg on your building that you bought, and a couple of years from now, you might repair the roof, right? Well, if you repair the roof, your first question is always, what's the unit of property? The unit of property is my building, and there's also subsystems in there that are separate UOPs. Um, Those structural components, the roof is, especially if you're just doing shingles or you're just doing the, the membrane of the roof, it's not a betterment to the unit of property. Right, you're not making it better. You're just replacing the roof. Uh, You're not restoring the unit of property. You might be restoring the roof, but remember, the unit of property is much bigger, right? And you're not adapting it to a different use. Still a building. So uh, chances are that that roof repair is probably going to be an expense. Uh, That's that's a good answer, right? Yeah, that's a good answer. Right for tax purposes, that's a good answer.
2: So, do you see? Do you ever see IRS challenges to cost segregation studies and allocation to shorter life property?
1: Uh, We do. Uh, and I've been involved in uh, numerous audits in my 20 plus years of, of doing this type of service. Um, and sometimes they'll, um, you know, they'll push back on, for example, what you call 1245. You know, they may not agree on certain positions on short life property versus long life, 1245 versus 1250. Um, oftentimes with real estate, what we see a lot of is um, really the IRS pushing back on land basis and depreciable building basis right? They don't always agree on what your depreciable basis is. Maybe they think, hey, there's not uh, enough land basis in this analysis. So we always advise our clients, if if they don't have a land appraisal done, to do one, uh, or if not, really try to come up with a reasonable way to allocate land and building, right, when doing a cost segregation, because it is important.
2: Right. Just your, your normal approach, 90-10, 75-25, that's, if you get audited, it's going to be a uh... It's not going to be a good
1: answer in your favor or a good factor in your favor. That's right. It may not be.
0: And your starting point is the depreciable value. So when you're doing the cost segregation, you're like, okay, we've already determined, rightly or wrongly, what the land value is. Now we're working with the rest. Right. Okay. And then I'm presuming kind of going down that same path, your engineered approach, you're saying, okay, what of the depreciable value is shorter life and then whatever's left over, at that point, is then just the longer-lived asset. It's not like necessarily a true allocation or a squeeze or anything like that, but it's more a matter of take out what you know shorter, and then the rest by default is longer.
1: Well, actually, it's it's the opposite. It's actually a squeeze. Okay. Um. And and the reason I say that is because um. And what you're talking about is the residual approach, where you just take a look at the 1245 property, and then everything else up to the purchase price would be real property. Mm-hmm. Um. However, you know, putting my engineer's hat on, right? When you think through that, um, that's not entirely correct, because if you're pricing out 1245 property, you should be also pricing out the 1250 property. And whatever that comes out to, you either allocate down or allocate up to purchase price. That way, you have priced everything out consistently, right, you haven't treated 1245 differently than 1240 uh, than the 1250 property. Um, so it makes more sense, really, from, uh, from a cost segregation perspective. And a quality cost seg, would do that allocation approach. Okay. Right. The residual approach is something that we tend to stay away from.
0: Okay. So, very similar to a purchase price allocation for GAP purposes on an asset purchase. So, in essence, if you buy the building at a, you know, if you buy a, if you get a great deal on the building and buy it at a discount, all your depreciable basis is going to be at a discount and it's going to be relative to each other. Conversely, if you buy it at a premium, same thing. Exactly. And I guess usually it would be at a premium, especially compared to construction costs. Correct. Because generally you've got the builder's profit especially if you're buying something new.
1: Yeah, and that's a good point. So we often get asked that question, um, what approach to value do we use when we do a cost seg? Um, You know, if you want to equate it to valuation, uh, it's a replacement cost new, less depreciation. So we are pricing things out from construction manuals, and typically that's lower than, especially now, right? What real estate costs.
0: Well, no, construction costs are kind of
1: high these days. They are are kind (laughs) of high, you're right. Good deal. Well, anything else you want to touch on? uh no i think you know this was awesome being here and uh and speaking with you guys on real estate and cost segregation and if we have any clients out there that might uh you know make use of our services feel free to reach out
0: well before we before we we close i'm going to date our podcast here for a minute okay okay um i guess you have some news to share about what's been happening up in you're, you're in the new york area and your change of office and everything going on with that
1: absolutely so we just recently acquired bookbinder um which we're very excited about at Weaver. And not only does that provide us with um, many more professionals to help our clients, but also some new offices up in the Northeast. So we're adding a New York City office, uh, aside from the one that we're already at. And uh, in my home state of New Jersey, we're, we're, we have an office as well in Little Falls. Um, so very excited about the shorter commute potential. <laughs> good deal.
0: Good deal. Yeah, and that transaction also... Um, gives us an office in Maryland, so we're mm-hmm. in, in the D.C. area now. Right. So we're continuing our ever-growing geographic footprint from coast to coast. Thank you so much, all for joining us. I appreciate you coming to town um, and being here with us today. Thanks for having me. Sure. So that's all the time we have today for our Location Cubed, a Weaver Beyond the Numbers podcast. Um, be sure to check out all of our episodes on Apple or Spotify, as well as the Weaver website, www.weaver.com.